Let's open our Bibles to Exodus this evening, Exodus chapter 12 tonight, Exodus chapter 12. In just a minute, we're going to be partaking of the Lord's Supper together. Down here, before we partake of the Lord's Supper together this evening, I want to take a minute and look at the record of the very first, very first Passover. If you are keeping up with the Bible reading schedule that we published and are putting in the bulletin each week, then you would have read this account this last week. You might be thinking, what does is, what is the Passover have to do with the Lord's Supper? Well, the Passover, or I should say the Lord's Supper, is actually what Jesus turned the Passover into. The last supper that Jesus had with His disciples was the Passover supper. And so He took this Old Testament feast and He gave it a brand new meaning. And so by going back and looking at the original story tonight, I hope that we can glean some truths that will help us understand the significance of the Lord's Supper and especially the significance of what the Lord has done for us in His sacrifice for us. Exodus chapter 12, we're going we're gonna to cover a, a lot of ground tonight, but we'll begin not by reading um, the whole chapter, but just uh, the first six verses. Exodus chapter 12, in verse number 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year, You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Heavenly Father, teach us your word tonight. Show us what we need to know and show us how we need to change. And Lord, I pray that the significance of what Christ has done for us will have all new meaning to us tonight as we think about His sacrifice for our sin. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we look at the details of the Passover tonight, let's just pause and kind of be reminded of the context here. In the book of Exodus, Moses is the central character. And we are first introduced to him when he is just an infant. He was born at a time when Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had declared that all the Jewish baby boys were supposed to be killed. They were afraid because the Jews were becoming a mightier nation than the Egyptians, and they were concerned that the Jews might rebel, might revolt, or might side with an enemy who invaded. And so they issued this proclamation that all of the baby boys were to be killed. First of all, it was commanded of the, uh, the midwives to kill the baby boys, but they feared God and they didn't do it. So then Pharaoh gave permission to all the Egyptians that if they found a Hebrew boy, they could put them to death. Well, Moses' parents 
obviously knowing that this was wrong, this was sinful, but also noticing that, that Moses was a special child. They knew something was, something was different, something was special. They hid him for three months, and then when they could no longer hide him in their house, the Bible tells us that his mother made for him a little basket, and uh, she coated it with pitch so it would be waterproof, and she put him in it, and she put him in the river and committed him to the Lord's care. As the story goes, Pharaoh's daughter came down to the river to wash herself, and she heard Moses, little infant Moses, crying, and went and retrieved him out of the, out of the weeds that were on the edge of the river there. And Moses' sister Miriam was watching this whole time, and when she saw Pharaoh's daughter retrieve Moses, she went and suggested that, that she go and fetch a Hebrew nurse to take care of this baby. And of course, who did Miriam get? Their mother. And so... What a beautiful picture it is that when Moses' mother surrendered him in full trust to the Lord's care, God gave him back and she got to care for him for the early years of his life. Fast forward 40 years and Moses is now an adult and he knows that God has called him to do a special thing and so one day he goes out to visit the Jews, his brethren, and he sees an Egyptian beating in Hebrew. And so he, he rises up and he The Bible says he looks this way and he looks that way and thinking that no one saw, thinking that no one was looking, he killed the Egyptian and he buried his body in the sand to hide him. The next day he goes out and two Hebrews, two Jews, are are squabbling with one another and he intervenes and one of them turns and says, are you going to kill me like you did the Egyptian? And he knew that his sin had found him out. The Bible says that he fled from there to the wilderness. He went into the wilderness and for 40 years he lived as a shepherd. There... He joined with a, uh, a man by the name of Jethro and his family, ended up marrying one of the, uh, his daughters by the name of Zipporah. They had two sons together. And then after 40 years, Moses is now 80 years old, he has the burning bush experience in which God tells Moses, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt and give Pharaoh a message. Tell him, let my people go. Oh, and just so you know, Moses, he's not going to listen to you. He's going to say no. He's going to harden his heart. But I will break him. And I will bring him out by a mighty hand, the Lord said. So Moses goes, and he goes to Pharaoh, and and he says, God has said to let his people go into the wilderness and worship him. Now you're King Pharaoh. In Egyptian culture, they worshiped Pharaoh as a god. He was an ultimate ruler. Nobody questioned his power and his authority. And here is this former, I don't know, how do you want to call him, adopted son of the princess, now is coming back and saying, let these Jews who were your slaves, your free labor, let them go? No, not going to do that. Pharaoh says no. And that starts what we know now as the ten plagues. It's an interesting study to go through all of the ten plagues because every one of those plagues was designed specifically by God to show God's power over the false gods of Egypt. The Egyptians worshipped all kinds of different gods. They worshipped the sun. They worshipped the river. They worshipped all kinds of things. And every one of those plagues was designed to show God's power over all of their false gods. 
Another thing that's interesting as you go through that story, I mean, you read about the, the water turning to blood. You read about the flo- frogs. You read about the lice. You read about the flies. You read about uh, the cattle's being diseased. You read about the boils on the people, the hail that came. Uh, you, uh, you read about the locusts, and you read about the darkness, and, and you think to yourself, man, this Pharaoh guy is hard-headed. He doesn't get it. But all along the way, there's at least three different occasions where where Pharaoh offered Moses a compromise. He said, first of all, um, why don't you just worship God here in the land? We'll let you worship God here in the land. Moses said, no, God commanded us to go out. We've got to go out and do it. He comes back with a second compromise. And he says, well, why don't you just send your men out to worship? Moses said, no, God has commanded us all to go. We're going to go as families and worship. There's a lesson in that. And then third compromise, he says, all right, you can go and your families, but you've got to leave all your cattle behind. He wanted to make sure that they would return. And Moses said, no, we can't do that because God has commanded us to take them because we're going to be using them for the sacrifices. All three times that Pharaoh offered a compromise, Moses said, no, we're not going to compromise. But now we come to the final plague. The final plague is the plague of the death angel. In chapter 11, God told Moses... Verse 4, about midnight will I go out in the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of the beasts. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that ye may know that the Lord hath put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these thy servants shall come and bow down unto me and bow down themselves unto me, saying, Get thee out and all the people that follow thee. And that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in a great anger. So this final play, God said to Moses, Pharaoh is going to let you go. He's going to send you out. He's going to, in fact, demand that you leave. It's a shame that it had to get to this point, but that's what it took. This last and final plague, God said, I'm going to kill all the firstborn in every house. All the firstborn of the people, all the firstborn of the cattle, every firstborn. It's hard for us to even fathom that level of devastation that that would be. How many of you in here tonight, you are the firstborn in your, in your family, of your siblings? Raise your hand. You're firstborn of your siblings. One, two, three, four, five, six... 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, all right? 11 people in here. Can you imagine? This is horrific, but think of this. Could you imagine if you woke up tomorrow morning to the news that these 11 people that just raised their hand had died during the night? That would be devastating. And that's just... In this small congregation, could you imagine if that happened on a national scale? It's going to be devastating. But see, God, as He always does, had a plan to save His people. And that's what we read about in chapter 12. God gave Moses instructions that they were to observe a particular ritual. And that by observing this particular ritual, the firstborn of their homes would be saved from the death angel that would come. Notice what this ritual, what came to be known as the Passover, notice what it involved. First of all, it involved a sacrificial lamb. 
a sacrificial lamb. We read about that just a moment ago. That the first step in, in observing this ritual was to find a lamb that they would sacrifice. There were some stipulations given. It had to be a male, had to be of the first year, and it had to be without blemish, according to verse number 5. Now, this was very important that they followed this exactly because God was, was, was going to use this as a picture of what Jesus Christ would later do. But we need to rewind a little bit before we even discuss that because actually this is based on a pattern that was established way back in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve first sinned, God came to the garden and there was that separation there. He cried, Adam, where art thou? Because Adam had hid himself. And, and the Lord asked him, why did you hide yourself? And Adam said, because we knew we were naked. Now Adam and Eve had taken fig leaves and tried to clothe their nakedness, but that wasn't sufficient. Even they knew it wasn't sufficient because they still hid from God. And the Bible tells us that on that very day that God made for Adam and Eve coats of skins. Not plants, but skins from animals. Now in order for that to happen, an animal had to die. And the very first physical death that took place in creation came at the hands of the Creator as that animal was sacrificed in the place of Adam and Eve to serve as a covering for their guilt and their shame. That's what it was. God made them a coat of skin. And that animal died in their place. There the pattern was established for all to see. The plan of salvation, by the way, had already been determined in eternity past. But in the, in the timeline of history, this is the first instance where we see this picture emerging. As you continue through the book of Genesis, you read of a lot of different sacrifices. Noah offered sacrifices to the Lord. Abraham offered sacrifices to the Lord. At one point, God told Abraham to, act, to sacrifice his own son Isaac. And as he carried him up to the mountain and stretched him on the altar and had the knife raised, God stopped him and told him not to do it. But instead, over in the thicket, there was a ram caught by the horns that, that Abraham offered in Isaac's place. Isaac would offer sacrifices. Jacob sacrificed. And, and so we have this pattern already established up to this point in the book of Exodus of these sacrifices that are given to God that are a substitute a substitute for us, or a substitute for all those who offered those sacrifices. The pattern and the principle established is the one of what we would call substitutionary atonement. And that is where the innocent stand in and pay the penalty for the guilty. And here in this particular passage, God commands them to take a lamb without blemish, male of the first year. And that lamb was to be sacrificed. It was to be killed. What did that lamb deserve to do to deserve to die? Did that lamb commit some horrible atrocity? Did that lamb sin against God? No. But that lamb would die in order to save God's people. There was a sacrificial lamb. But then I want you to notice here also that there's the saving blood. In verse number 7, and they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts of the upper door post of the house, wherein they shall eat it. Look down at verse 13. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Look down to verse 21. 
Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said unto them, Draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. And ye shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. So there was a particular part of this sacrifice that was very, very important, and it was the blood of that lamb. Now, to us, we know if you know this story, then it may not strike you how strange these instructions were. God said, you're to sacrifice this lamb. And when you do it, you are to save the blood. And you're to take that blood and you're going to essentially paint your door jams with this blood. Again, if you know the story, that may be like, well, yeah, that's how it works. I'm going to hazard a guess here that none of you have ever painted your door jams with blood. That's not something you normally do. But God was very specific here. This was an important piece of the puzzle. It was not enough just for the lamb to be sacrificed. The blood had to be applied in order for the house to be saved. That's very important. You know, Jesus shed His blood on the cross for us. And He died on that cross so that anyone and everyone could be saved. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The Lamb has been sacrificed, but not all have applied the blood. You see, when the Israelites took this blood, and they took this little bunch of hyssop, this this little uh, shrubbery kind of a, a, uh, an herb thing, and they dipped it in the blood, and then they used that to paint it. That was an act of two things. First of all, it was an act of obedience. They were following God's instructions. Now, if they had sat down and they had thought, thought this thing through and said, does this really make sense? They would have come to the conclusion, no, it doesn't. But they didn't do that. Instead, they just said, God said it, we're going to do it. It was an act of obedience. And number two, it was an act of faith. By doing this, they were saying, we trust that God's going to keep His word. We believe that by doing this, though it may seem silly, though the Egyptians may be wondering what this is all about, they may think we've gone crazy. If we do this, we believe that God is going to keep His word. It was an act of faith. It became an important picture as a part of this whole Passover. Later in the sacrificial system that was given in the Old Testament law, there would be a particular day every year called the Day of Atonement in which the blood of the sacrifice would be brought into the temple, into that inner room known as the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, and on top of the Ark of the Covenant was, was a special I, uh, a special statue-like thing that was called the mercy seat. And there, the blood would be sprinkled on it. And that would signify the atonement of the sins of Israel for one more year. 
Blood would be sacrificed throughout the year for different sacrifices, particularly if someone had sinned and they needed to, um, they needed to uh, get right with God, they would bring a sacrifice and that, that blood would be shed. And Hebrews puts it this way, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's no remission of sins. You cannot have forgiveness of sins. You cannot have cleansing from your sin without the shedding of blood. Why the blood, though? Well, when the book of Leviticus tells us that the life is in the blood, the blood represents the life of that creature. And so by putting the blood on the door jam, it was signifying that this house was under the protection of a substitutionary sacrifice. An animal that was spotless and innocent had died in their place and they were protected. The blood had to be applied. And it's, it's repeated over and over again. The Lord said, when I see the blood, not when I see the ashes from the altar and from the fire, not when I see that y'all have eaten the meal, not when I see that you've done this or that, but when I see the blood, I will pass over you. The blood was significant. But then there's another aspect of this. And that is not only the sacrificial lamb and the saving blood, but the number three, the serious reminder. God set a pattern here. Look at verse 14. He said, And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. God here is issuing a new command that His people were to remember this event annually. And this is to be forever in perpetuity. They were to keep on doing it without end until He said otherwise. Notice verse 15. Let's let's read some of the details of how they were to remember this and what they were supposed to do. Seven days shall ye eat unleavened bread. Even the first day ye shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whoso eateth leavened bread from the first day unto the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. And in the first day there shall be an holy convocation, and the seventh day shall be an holy convocation to you. No manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat, and that only may be done of you. And ye shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore ye shall observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at even, ye shall eat unleavened bread until the one and twentieth day of the month at even. Seven days shall there be no leaven found in your houses, for whatsoever, whosoever eateth that which is leaven... Even that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he be a stranger or born in the land. Ye shall eat nothing leavened in all your habitations. Ye shall eat unleavened bread. So the first part of this this remembrance that they were to do, and this would have began with the very first Passover as well, most likely, was to rid their houses of anything that was leavened. So whenever... Uh, people bake something, or, or almost every time they bake something, they use some kind of a leavening agent. That is what makes the, the dough or the batter rise. 
All right, there's some chemistry going on there, some pretty cool stuff where whatever this leavening agent is, it's causing a chemical reaction, or maybe there are uh, organisms, microorganisms at work that are breaking these things down, and as they do this, and as these reactions occur, it releases different kinds of gases. And so you get these air bubbles, and uh, the air bubbles cause it to rise. If you've ever baked with yeast, or even used baking soda, or, or even if you do sourdough products, you have the same concept here. You've got to have this little bit of a leavening agent to make this this dough rise. If you don't have that, you end up with a very, very flat tortilla. Now, don't get me wrong. I love tortillas, all right? But actually, some tortillas even have leavening agent in them. And it was curious that God said, here's a part of what I want you to do as this remembrance every year. I want you to get every bit of leavening out of your house. And for seven days, you can only eat unleavened bread. Unleavened bread. And this kind of traditionally became a game with Jewish families. To this day, um, Jews who observe uh, the, uh, the Passover will make a game of it in which they will, uh, the parents will actually hide little things of leaven all over the house and the kids will go around and uh, see how much of it they can find, you know. And, uh, and, and so they would go through this whole process of ridding their house of the leaven and eating unleavened bread. Why was this important? Well, that leaven is a wonderful illustration of sin. There's a couple times in the New Testament where the phrase is used, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. It's a wonderful picture of how just a little bit of sin can affect the whole person or even a whole group. And there was an imagery here that in order to prepare yourself for the Passover, you needed to make sure that you had gotten all the leaven out. You had gotten all of the sin out of your life and out of your home. It's an interesting picture here that God commanded them. He told them that they were to do this on a yearly basis. It was a yearly feast, something that was to be remembered over and over again. And then also as a part of this, they were to observe a Sabbath. There was to be a day when which an, an extra day that is, not necessarily sometimes it might coincide with the weekly Sabbath, but if it didn't, you were to have an extra Sabbath, a day that was set aside specifically for this. Now, why did God tell them to do this? Look at verse 21. Excuse me, verse 24. And ye shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever. And it shall come to pass... When ye be come to the land which the Lord will give you, according as he hath promised, that ye shall keep this service. And and notice verse 26. And it shall come to pass, when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this sacrifice? That ye shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. And the people bowed the head and worshipped. Here's why God told them to observe this annually. Forever. It's so that every generation would be reminded on a regular basis of what God had done to deliver the Israelites from Egypt. Can I say that there is nothing wrong with a ritual as long as it reminds us of what God has done? I, I understand sometimes we, we kind of bow up against r- rituals and different things because a lot of religious groups have taken the rituals and made it all about the ritual. 
You have to do this ritual, you have to do that ritual in order to be saved, in order to be right with God. In fact, the whole idea of a sacrament, that word itself, means a ritual that is a means of grace. Well, biblically, that's nonsense, because if you do something to earn something, it's not grace, okay? So, I understand why we might kind of bow up against the idea of a ritual, but listen, there is wisdom in what God has told us here of doing things frequently if for no other reason than to teach our children what it's all about. And one of the, thing, one of the reasons we regularly observe the Lord's Supper is so that, that we are teaching the next generation and reminding them of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. A number of times over the years, you know, parents have said to me that maybe their child isn't saved yet or maybe their child hasn't been baptized yet. And when we partake of the Lord's Supper, you know, the parents very wisely say, no, you can't take this right now. And later they have a conversation when the child asks, mommy, daddy, why couldn't I take this? They're able to talk to them about the significance of the Lord's Supper and and why it's important to know for sure that you're saved and then follow the Lord in believer's baptism. It's all because it's supposed to be a serious reminder And that is what the Passover was to be. So then we come to the New Testament and we find the Lord's Supper. Jesus, the day before He would be arrested and then crucified, had sent His disciples into town and told them to go and prepare where they might be able to take the the Passover Supper together. The disciples went in, they found the upper room, they prepared it, and Jesus came in that evening. And the meal that they had, the Lord's Supper, was not just an average, ordinary fellowship meal. This was the Passover meal. And that night, Jesus took the, the elements of the bread and the cup, and He gave them a whole new meaning. Because, first of all, Jesus is the spotless lamb. How did John the Baptist announce him to the world? He said, behold, the lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus is that spotless lamb. He is, according to the writer of Hebrews, the the sacrifice that was sacrificed once for all. In the Old Testament, it was constant. Every year they had to come back with the sacrifice and go into the Holy of Holies with the blood. But when Jesus gave His blood on the cross, when He sacrificed Himself for us, it ended all of that. He is the Lamb. His blood is the blood that seals us into a new covenant that fulfills all of the requirements of the Old Testament so that now when we come before God and worship, we don't have to bring animals and sacrifices God is already satisfied with what Jesus has done. And as Jesus instructed His disciples, He told them to continue this this observation. And He said, This do in remembrance of Me. Do it to remember Me. We have the same elements there. We have the sacrificial lamb. We have the saving blood. And we have the serious reminder. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. So how do, how do we put this information into practice? Well, first of all, we need to observe the Lord's Supper regularly. Sometimes people debate how frequently you should observe the Lord's Supper. 
if somebody were to say that they were under the conviction that you only had to do it once a year because of the correlation to the Passover, I would say, all right, if you do that consistently, then I'm not going to part ways with you just over this issue. I've heard of other people, and this used to be true many, many years ago, um, but uh, uh, many years ago, it used to be common for the Lord's Supper to be observed every single week. Every single week. In fact, uh, Charles Spurgeon was um, noted for criticizing people who only observed it once a month. So how often should we observe it? We're actually not told it specifically, but we're just told as often as you do observe it, this do it in remembrance of me. So the point, though, is not as much how often, but the fact that we do observe it regularly. And what's even more important or as important as that is not only that we observe it reverently, regularly, excuse me, but that we observe it reverently, reverently. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11. And as you're turning there, remember that whole picture of searching the house and getting rid of all the leaven to prepare for the Passover? That is a wonderful illustration of how we should prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper. Imagine that your heart is a house and imagine that sin is the leaven and that in order to be ready to take the Passover, you had to go through the house, check every corner, check every drawer, check every cabinet, clean out the fridge, make sure there's nothing back there. I mean, go through everything with a fine-tooth comb to be ready for the Passover. So that is that as you and I approach the Lord's table, we should go through our lives with a fine-tooth comb and allow God to show us if there is any sin in our heart at all. Because our goal and our desire ought to be to rid our lives of any sin. Notice what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 11. Verse 27, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Here is what Paul told the Corinthians and what the Holy Spirit tells us. Before you take part in the Lord's Supper, you need to examine yourself. For what? What are we looking for? We are looking for the sin in our life. The sin that we are not dealing with. The sin that we are coddling in our lives. The sin that we are refusing to confess. The sin that, like leaven, is is affecting all of us. That's what we're looking for. Because if... It says if we eat and drink unworthily. It's talking about the manner in which we partake. That is, if we have this attitude of, uh, such, a, such an attitude about the Lord's sacrifice, that we're like, I don't care what God has done for me. I don't care what Jesus has done for me. I'm going to live how I want to live. And we partake of the Lord's Supper with that kind of an attitude in our heart, then we are putting ourselves in a dangerous position. 
I mean, you read what Paul said. This is a warning here. You are eating and drinking to yourself damnation. Judgment from God. Chastening from God Almighty. And Paul said, for this reason, some people are sick. They're suffering physically. And that physical malady is a direct result of their flippant attitude toward Christ's sacrifices demonstrated in the Lord's Supper. And even some people have died. Slept is the word that he used there. They're Christians, but they, we would say they came to a premature death. All because of this. So what does he say? Verse 28, examine yourself. Go through your house and look for any leaven. Search your heart, search your life, and allow God to reveal to you anything and everything that you need to get right. Let's look at one more passage, Psalm 139. Psalm 139. tell you, one, one thing that frightens me, it frightens me to meet a Christian who doesn't care about sin in their life. It frightens me. Because they're putting themselves in a very dangerous place. Here's what the psalmist said in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, And know my heart, try me, and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, O God. Let me encourage you here. Don't be afraid of what God might find if you pray this prayer. You know, that's what the devil wants us to do. He wants us not to pray this. He wants us to not open ourselves up to the searching of the Holy Spirit because we're afraid of what we might find. Listen, there is something far worse that you need to be afraid of. Don't be afraid of what God might find if you let Him search your heart. Be afraid of not dealing with what is in your heart if God doesn't reveal it to you. That's what you should be afraid of. Be afraid of closing yourself off from the Holy Spirit and saying, no, I don't, I don't want you to look. No, I don't, I don't want you to search. I don't want you to try me. I don't want you to see if there be any wicked way in me. That's what you need to be afraid of. Because when that's how we live, we are closing ourselves off from the Lord. We are harming our relationship and our fellowship with Him. We are pulling away from Him. We are backsliding from Him. The result for us is going to be pain and misery and destruction because that's what sin does. No, we need to be willing to open up to the Lord and say, search me and mean it. And to say, try me and to truly want Him to do it. To know, notice how the psalmist said, know my heart, know my thoughts. It's easy to clean up the outside. And it's easy to fool everyone around you into thinking you've got your act together because you made the outside look good. God knows the heart. Are you willing for God to take a peek on the inside? To pop the hood, as it were, 
and to see what the true condition of your life is. And notice what he says in verse 24, See if there be any wicked way in me. Lord, there's nothing off limits in my life. Whatever it is, if it's wrong and if it needs to go, show me and I will get rid of it. That should be our attitude. Examine yourself. And then you may eat and drink worthily.